This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, everybody. David Lasondak here, and I am so excited to bring you today's episode of Body Talk. Today, I've got the one and only Robert Schlein, and we go there. We go everywhere. We talk about his new book, Fascia in Sports, and we talk about neurophysiology. We talk about healthy ground substance. We talk about Yoda. We talk about all of the things and then some, and the most delightful bit of it is what I love about Robert, among many things, is you ask him one question and you get an answer and you get five more things to think about. I know I'm going to be re-listening to this episode, and I was there. But I got to tell you, there's so much in this week's episode of Body Talk. So let's get right to it. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Body Talk. I'm your host, David Lasondak, and it is my absolute delight to have somebody I've been wanting to get on the program for a long time now. He was the first structural integrator in Germany. He is one of, if not the most foremost scientific thinkers in the fascia community. He spent a lot of the last two decades in research, but still maintains a private practice. And he's an author with uh, the second edition of his book out with Jan Wilka and Amanda Baker, Fascia in Sport and Movement, which has 48 juicy chapters, all about every aspect you can think of with fascia and connective tissue, and how it relates to specific sports as well as in the body in general. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program, Robert Schleich. Thank you, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward and uh, particularly since I have uh, known you, David, for several age, ages or generations <laughs> or decades, you have, you have been a, a fellow traveler on this very adventurous trip to be uh, among the forefront, not at the very beginning, but at the dynamic beginnings of what is now being called fascia research. And I'm particularly happy to be in this talk together with you. Thank you. I, I feel the same way. I felt like Alice uh, down the rabbit hole. I, I fell into the fascia community and the fascia research world at just the right time. And I still feel mm -hmm. very, very fortunate to have done that. So my first question to you, Robert, is what started you on the journey towards applying the research specifically into the sport and movement community? For me, it started the other way. Okay. I, came, I came from uh, two decades of practical experience in bodywork, mostly structural integration mm -hmm. as a roughing method that has been shaping my life, but also with the Feldenkrais method. And then because of that practical experience and also getting into the teaching there, I wanted to know more about the scientific uh, foundations. And I was not satisfied with the depths of scientific foundation that I found. So I organized myself a sabbatical year and I found it very exciting what I found in the sabbatical year in terms of literature, but also interviewing scientists and writing it together 
for my fellow structural integration colleagues. And then I extended the sabbatical a year, another year and another year. And then I found <laughs> out, and then together with you and others, I was involved in the very first Fashion Research Congress 2007 at the grounds of Harvard uh, Medical School Conference Center. And then I was so excited that this has been changing my life now. So I came from practical experience mm -hmm. uh, and I changed into a laboratory scientist. Yes, and you did some of the first bench research that showed that, that fascial tissue by itself can actively contract. Yeah, so that was a, a real uh, adventure story for me because uh, in my research, I found two papers that uh, were not related to each other that indicated that fascia may have contractile cells, which like the smooth muscle cells in other tissues, may be driven by the autonomic nervous system and that there is a fascial tonus which is more influenced by our autonomic nervous system differently regulated to the normally more voluntary muscle tonus regulation and i found that very exciting and then i thought i would do a few experiments and would become famous and then return back to my practice. And that's not how it happened. It took no. me 10 years to finish that laboratory work. <laughs> and now we know the assumption is, uh, is true. Fascia can actively contract, but much slower than we had been assuming. So it's totally negligible how much fascia can contract in a time frame of minutes or hours. But mm -hmm. over a time frame of weeks and months, it can be very powerful, of course. But I found that very exciting. And the link between the autonomic nervous system and fascial stiffness has been one of the prime features of our research at World University. So, so this leads to a question, and, and then we'll get to the book. Um, if, if that contraction happens slowly over weeks and months as opposed to hours and days, why does it seem to, under the correct, under stimulus, uh, begin to ease and relax seemingly rather quickly? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, so I was thinking it would be the contractile cells in fascia. And, uh, but if you count them, they, are, they make up very little of the volume. So that's very different in fascia as opposed to muscles. So if the active cells relax in fascia, it doesn't have much of an influence because they make up 5% of the volume. Mm -hmm. And also if they relax, it takes them a long time to relax. So the effect that you feel when you have a roughing stroke and you apply the stroke, let's say for 10 seconds or for 60 seconds, but not for two months. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not related to cellular relaxation of these fascial myofibroblasts and fibroblasts, but it's linked to muscle cells relaxing in response to stimulation of Golgi tendon organs, Ruffini tendon organs. Uh, most fascial tissues are linked with muscle fibers uh, regulating the tightness in it. So if you look at the first layer of the lumbar dorsal fascia, the gluteus maximus and the latissimus dorsi, they determine how stiff it is, not only the internal architecture. Or if you lean with your elbow on an IT band, and then many people in the neuro centers 
community in the United States say you cannot stretch the IT band um, because it's very stiff, but you can definitely influence the stiffness of it if mm -hmm. the tensor fascia lata yes. <laughs> or the gluteus maximus change their habitual resting tonus 5% or 10%. And then the stiffness of the IT band will be much softer, but you haven't changed uh, the internal architecture. So that is one likely phenomenon. And the other one, that is mm -hmm. one of the chapters that I like very much in the book, is the hydration. And that, that has been an aspect that, that I was very excited in writing the book. You know the, the feature, if you write a book, uh, there are times where it's a, a damn book and, <laughs> and, you, and you try to go to the fridge or to do sports instead of writing your chapter. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then there is a deadline coming. <laughs> Yeah, deadlines are good because they help you prioritize. Yeah. And then in the middle of the night, you get excited, you know, <laughs> and you call the publisher. I need two more months. You know, you need yeah, I've made those calls. I've made those calls I've made in those the middle calls. of the night because I'm just discovering this is too rich. So one of the chapters where in the middle of the night, I felt this is worth the whole book is the regulation of hydration. Of the yeah, the fluid of dynamics it. chapter yeah, is, yeah. is particularly. And that is something that you can change within minutes. Mm -hmm. so, so, so if you, if you, for example, you stimulate some free nerve endings, for example, in the, in the periost, mm -hmm. then you have a vasodilation and an increase of extra vasation. So that means microcirculation is increased. You have more blood in the tiny arterioles, but mm -hmm. also the penetration of blood plasma from the arterioles into the ground substance, into the spongy tissue, uh, is much higher if you stimulate these free nerve endings. And so, so sympathetic nerve stimulation in fascial tissues can make your fascia juicier and wetter. Mm -hmm. And that is something that will also explain how if you do a structural integration uh, session, you feel the tissue that has been hard and dry before gets juicy and soft yes. and not because of cellular relaxation, because of the uh, myofibroblast. I'm quite sure they cannot respond that quickly, but mm -hmm. because of the tissue getting more watery and more juicy. Hmm. So in, in that chapter on hydration, uh, you talk about uh, bound water and you talk about bulk water or common water. And of course, we're talking about water inside the body. But what is the difference between those two states of water? And how does that relate to the fascia system? Well, I think you were there when we had Gerald Pollack as a keynote speaker. Yes. At the 2012 Research Congress in Vancouver. And he presented that concept. And uh, I now found out he is not generally accepted. Uh, so in the water research community, uh, there is a huge community in the esoteric research group, yes. mm -hmm. but there is also a substantial research group which hates the word esoteric because they, they, they only believe what they can hardly quantify. And uh, um, Gerald Pollack is more in the esoteric research community, but he is also engaged in the more critical water research community. 
but he used the terminology that you have bound water and unbound water. And the unbound water is a regular water uh, where the molecules behave very chaotically and change their binding in femtoseconds. I think a mm -hmm. femtosecond is uh, 10, 10, 10, 10 minus 12 seconds. Yes. So a millions of a millions or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, and the research has not been available up to recently that you can follow a water molecule with whom it is uh, associating. So they are very uh, polygamic. They, <laughs> they make love in femtoseconds, but they don't remember with whom they have been in bed. Okay, uh, so polyamorous water ago. cells. All right, there's a whole <laughs> so new field of research. So these are the chaotic or the unbound water cells. And that was the conventional belief that they make up 99% of regular water, though, if you have water in, in, a, in a glass, in a drinking glass. Mm -hmm. And only on the surface, yes, closer to the surface, behavior. there's a regular order. To yeah. That. So in, in clean water, not if you put some uh, soap in it, uh, you, you can put a spider on top and it will not sink down. And that is because of surface tension. And that was known before, before Gerald Pollack and his mm -hmm. colleagues, that some layers of uh, water molecules, and it was assumed that is only uh, uh, very like like hundreds of a millimeter. Or yeah, like ten layers, ten yeah, layers, ten layers, or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. That there, uh, they become more more stationary. That the water molecules are still vibrating, but they are vibrating around a stable axis. So that means uh, they have always the same neighbors and they are not chaotically changing their position. And that is called the liquid crystal, not as a, as a caric term, mm -hmm. a liquid crystal, but as a precise physical term when molecules have a stable axis. And you have that in frozen water, but you also have it in what he calls bound water. And that was known before to be there on the upper few layers of molecules where they meet the air. But now he and many colleagues found out uh, in biological water, it is often the maturity of the water molecules which are in a bound condition because they are close to a hydrophobic or hydrophilic surface. So uh, if you have a fern tree or a piece of moss, it bifurcates so many times that at the end, it has a very, very high surface for millions of dewdrops to attach themselves onto these uh, hydrophilic uh, surfaces that you have in a piece of moss or in a fern tree. I was and, the just... same, and the same is happening mm -hmm. in the... Uh, brush-like architecture of the ground substance. So what I want to have every time I see a, a, a juicy piece of moss in the forest or mm -hmm. a fern tree that bifurcates uh, a couple of times and has millions of little tentacles so that millions of little water drops can attach themselves and resist gravity to fall down, then I think this is how I want my fascia to have so that the ground substance in healthy fascia has more bifurcations and it means more than 50% of the water molecules are like dewdrops. 
That means that they are in a bound condition mm -hmm. and that, uh, and then they of course behave very, very similar. So that is a hypothesis. Okay. Uh, but our Rolfo colleague, Dr. Kai Hodek, he did a very nice publication with a colleague of Gerald Pollack, Andre, Andre Sommer, where they measured to what distance do water molecules turn into a bound condition when they are close to a hydrophilic surface. And they measured that with, uh, with, uh, with diamonds. <clears throat> and they came up to a distance, which I think is a tenth of a millimeter. Okay. And if you go down into the ground substance, you will see that that means that probably Gerald Pollack is true, that in healthy fascia, more than 50%, but probably not 90%, of the water is in a dewdrop, that's my language, uh -huh. but in a bound condition and not in the chaotic bulk uh, condition. Yeah, so I'm thinking about my, my pond outside with the, uh, it's got about a three foot spillway where the water rushes into the pond and I have to, yeah. and there's moss that grows on either side of it. And some of this, so I'm just seeing this all in my head yeah. inside my body now, you'd love my outside feature there. Does this, does so this this gives this bound condition this dewdrop like state gives us does that give us more spring and more resilience in our connective tissue architecture is that the idea that's what i think but i'm not true you know <laughs> so that, but, but that is the assumption of many people there mm -hmm. but I, as don't a know, scientist, I don't know for sure but i think yeah it's true. but but as a scientist you know you can't you can't a, you, you can't say that you can't say that. Yeah. You can say it's a possibility, yeah. but you can't say um, that that's definitely true. There are indications that in edema, in pathological yes. swelling, in, mm -hmm. inflammatory swelling, you have more bulk chaotic water and less of the bound and less of the dewdrop water because mm -hmm. you have big water ponds without any hyaluronic <laughs> attachment. Uh, threats for them in there. So they are uh, little islands of swollen water in them. And uh, they feel different to touch. So a swollen joint, if you touch it, the elastic, if you touch a swollen knee, mm -hmm. with somebody who has a, a swollen knee, and you push with your finger three millimeters into the tissue and you let go of your finger, the elastic recoil is different then if you do that with a completely healthy tissue. But, uh, but I'm not sure. So this is one of the, uh, the uh, mm -hmm. tools that we are playing with. We have developed uh, a tool that measures not only the stiffness of the tissue, and we want to compete it with the best human hands we can find mm -hmm. for measuring stiffness, but we can also measure with the, with the tool the viscoelastic uh, storage capacity. So whether the tissue oh. is like, like a rubber ball, mm -hmm. you push it in and it bounces back within half a second, or whether it is like um, some plastilins, like some dowel, you push it in and it blah, comes yeah. back with mm -hmm. a delay. Yes. So that would be interesting. The example I gave you from inflammatory conditions shows you there is already a change in this springiness of the tissue. But whether it's a one-to-one -one relationship and whether there are other conditions except inflammatory edema, 
in which you can say the more bound water that you have, the more springy the tissue is, mm -hmm. is, is a big question. So, okay, so there may be a correlation between yeah. the bound water and the elastic recoil properties, yeah. but we don't know for sure yet, if I'm hearing yeah. you correctly. Um, it's also, uh, and that is uh, associated now with all the liquid aspects of fascia that has shifted the focus in the last few years. Jean-Claude Gimberto has been emphasizing that for many ages. He, he fell totally in love with the liquid, with the loose connective tissue. He didn't have many good videos of the dense connective tissue that the structural integrators uh, believed they were focusing on. But that was due to the lighting in his endoscopic camera. So Andre Fleming gave him some money to do also some uh, endoscopic uh, video images and beautiful images of the lumbar dorsal fascia, the dense layer, but mm. the light didn't work. So he had black <sighs> images then. But that is one of the reasons why he had focused on the loose connective mm -hmm. tissue. And then Neil Tease, I think you had him also in the podcast oh, yes. or, or you're planning for him. Mm -hmm. You also opened our eyes and uh, in, in focusing on what he calls the interstitium as a body-wide network of loose connective tissues. And now recently he published uh, a breakthrough, at least for me, where he showed that the loose connective tissue under the skin is completely connected with the loose connective tissue around your visceral organs. Yes, and there's I a perfusion. I not been completely sure about that mm -hmm. because in anesthesia, they, they define a fascial compartment and you think that it's isolated but apparently the cells don't care for it. So he put tattoo pigments into people or he studied how they penetrate. And he shows we have one inner ocean, not three or four inner oceans of the loose connective tissue and, and how that behaves in the human body. And that is a very interesting aspect now. So how, how we influence that. Well, if you think about it though, from a, from a global perspective, we have one ocean. Mm -hmm. that we give different names to so we know where we are in the globe and that one ocean becomes deltas tributaries streams creeks and so forth or you could go from the other direction yeah. and yeah. say it starts there melts down and creates this one ocean but it's all part of the same water system but yeah. it has different properties based on the terrain and the topography uh, just as our inner landscape has yeah. those kinds of differences. But it's yeah. harder to map the inner landscape because uh, people don't take kindly to being opened up and looked at yeah. when they're doing things, yeah. which makes it hard to study. Yeah, but apparently you have different cells uh, um, living in the loose connective tissue. Of course, they can mm -hmm. migrate easier. So you have more mobile cells. Uh, it's very busy in the loose connective tissue and less busy if you would do a time-lapse uh, video image mm -hmm. in the Achilles tendon, but if you would do a time-lapse mobility image of how many cells move right to left and left to right, in the loose connective tissue, it is much more populated. And you have a lot of immune cells fighting with a lot of microbiome cells uh, and they keep them down and in, in, in uh, pathologies like in Lyme's disease or mm -hmm. in uh, eosinophilic uh, fasciitis, the invaders win 
and uh, the immune cells uh, are at the, at the downside of this constant uh, fight with each other in the loose connective tissue. So it's very busy in there. Mm -hmm. And I think how stagnant the water is, is also having a big influence. And uh, we learned at the last Fascia Congress from Peter Friedel and others in Berlin, that we have these Bonghan channels mm -hmm. uh, or primovascular channels. And they are created uh, by the cells moving through the jungle. So the first cell that wants to go from the right to left, it takes the path of least resistance. And then the next cell more likely follows the same path way because it's even easier to go through the jungle to the same sure, way. Sure, you cut away, you cut away the, uh, with, your, with your cellular machete, you clear a path yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. easier for other cells to follow. So, so you preferred them clefts or conduits and not channels because mm -hmm. they are not com completely isolated around uh, channels like the blood vessels, et cetera. But mm -hmm. that's where the cells can move easily. And, and the big question is, is uh, whether you have a lot of ground substance that bounds water, mm -hmm. that means you have more tiny pockets in, in, uh, in your uh, loose connective tissue. But if you have bulk water like in edema, that will be very, very different. It will be also very different for the cells to move through it. So I think this will be a major emphasis also in new fascia conferences, not the dense collagenous tissues like the tendon, aponeurosis, et cetera, that we focus not exclusively, primarily in the past, but the loose connective tissue under the skin and mm -hmm. around your visual uh, organs but also around all your nerves and how busy it is in there and how you have pro-inflammatory cells and anti-inflammatory cells and also different binding conditions. So the, the prevailing wisdom right now in terms of the sport and movement is, is the better hydrated we keep these tissues, mm -hmm. the better we're going to feel and the better we're going to function. In general, as a scientist, you, you always say there is an exception to every rule. There so, is. There is. Yeah. So <laughs> in inflammation, I would not say, and in inflammatory swelling, you should hydrate it even more. No, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. So, but in general, I would, I would tend to agree, uh, particularly also with the subject uh, that has been more emphasized since the book came out, but it was already a topic in several of the chapters, how as we age, our architecture and our choosiness is changing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that uh, connective tissue injuries in older people, they happen at lower loads. So uh, the Achilles tendon of an older person fractures already at lower loads. And part of that is not due to how many collagen fibers you have in the Achilles tendon to, to resist, but also how dry it is. And that has been shown with the annulus fibrosis around the lumbar disc, which is a true uh, fascia in terms of a narrow definition of fascia, only dense, collagenous, multidirectional mm -hmm. connective tissues are called proper fascia. And they showed in a dry condition, it fractures much easier than in a wet condition. Okay. So that so means as, as mm -hmm. a 60 year old or over 60 year old couch potato, you should look for ways how to sponge squeeze your annulus fibrosus of your lumbar disc. 
because then they don't fracture so uh, so easily. Yes, and in a in a completely speculative way here, mm -hmm. could it be? Because uh, we know that there are thousands, uh, tens of thousands, maybe millions of people walking around, running around with herniated discs that have no pain. Mm -hmm. Could it be that the ones who have herniations that have pain have a drier condition as opposed to a juicier, wetter condition? Therefore, that affects the perception and the mobility. Is that a, something that could be possible? That would be a second one. The study that I was claiming only showed that they are more prone for herniation. Okay. Because, okay. because when, when you took, so you and I know, but we have to say it every day out in the population, mm -hmm. because many people out there don't know it. If you have a lumbar disc herniation, in 80% or 85% of the cases, it has no causal relationship with the low back pain. It is like gray hair. You have gray hair more in 60-year-old people than in 60-year-old people, mm -hmm. and they also have more low back pain, but it's not associated to the gray hair in the majority. And that's the case in the majority of low back pain cases where you see this herniation. There is no causal relationship. I'm saying that because you told me not everybody in this podcast uh, is educated <laughs> as much as you are. Yeah. But, or but is, and I'm not educated so, as much as you are. Yeah. But yeah, so, no, this, so, this so podcast hope, is for everybody yeah. who's so, interested but, in the body. So, but, yeah. so, but then you still have 15 or 20% of the cases where the disc herniation can cause pain. And then the question is, well, what is the difference? It could be related to how dry it was before it broke. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more related to inflammatory conditions. And yes, they could be associated. Because apparently it is not the mechanical pressure of the nucleus pulposus pushing on a nerve. It is the chemical irritation of the contact of the nucleus pulposus to other tissues that leads to an inflammation and that leads to the pain. And uh, so it, it's... Uh, if the nucleus pulposus mm -hmm. is in the neighborhood of the nerve, it may cause pain or not, but that seems to be not so much related to the mechanical pressure, but to the biochemical area. So if it's in the biochemical milieu, yeah. then uh, mechanical stimulation may have the exact yeah. opposite effect of what you want and make it more inflamed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, uh, so I think it's a, it's a very, very intriguing question whether the how dry the environment is also influences how soon you you get pain in there i'm not aware of anything like that but i would mm -hmm. be not the least surprised if you and i found out in the next two years that there is an association okay. what i know is an association to the acidic milieu and also to the pro-inflammatory condition so what so can it, be done to change that milieu? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So uh, as we get older, we develop more and more a pro-inflammatory milieu that is called now in the related fields in physiology, inflammaging. So inflammaging. the natural aging okay. goes along whether you love it or not. But that seems to be the same like getting gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want gray hair on the inside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or getting wrinkles. 
-hmm. Also, just natural aging, even with the same lifestyle, leads to an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines. We don't know why nature is doing that, mm -hmm. but we know it's in general not good for your health. And that silent inflammation is uh, a negative condition or it's an enhancing condition for how likely you get cancer and also cardiovascular diseases. And both of them make up two thirds of reasons for dying <laughs> in, our, in our population. So general health is very much influenced by how much your uh, internal biochemistry in the ground substance is influenced by uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. And natural aging, even with the same lifestyle leads to that. But then we also know lack of movement influences it and also nutrition and also regular stress does also influence it. Sure, because that would regular stress would change your autonomic tone, which would change yeah. the overall fascial yeah. tonus of your whole system. So, but, but that's a different topic, but a very exciting topic, uh, which therapeutic or lifestyle interventions have an anti-inflammatory effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably... Um, uh, I think most nutritional experts, we had a very nice nutritional chapter in the book we are talking here, uh, they That's agree on, on mm -hmm. certain things on an anti-inflammatory nutrition. So uh, you have less of the easy carbohydrates, you have more vegetables, and you have more uh, of the uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, they, they all have an anti-inflammatory effect and curcuma and similar aspects. Mm -hmm. But I think they are tiny compared to what moderate movement is doing to the inflammatory condition. And moderate movement is not for chimpanzee. For chimpanzee, moderate movement is uh, sleeping for three hours, then getting up and looking for a nice place to eat and then taking a nap for another two hours. That would be a moderate movement for chimpanzee, but for homo That's sapiens, for yes. <laughs> but for homo sapiens, this is not moderate movement. <laughs> homo sapiens uh, needs on average to locomote eight to 16 kilometers per day. Based wow. on the research that Dan Lieberman and others have done with gatherer and hunter societies that still mm -hmm. practice the lifestyle that our ancestors have been practicing. So if you locomote for eight to 16 kilometers per day average, or you do a similar garden work movement, etc., mm -hmm. then you have an anti-inflammatory effect on your ground substance. So if you live on a farm and you have to do to chop wood all day and dig holes and feed the animals and you fall into bed tired in the evening, uh, I don't think you need that many liters of cocoa and green tea to keep your, your ground substance from getting in a pro-inflammatory pro negative effect. But for many of us, moderate movement is what is needed. And we can top that with, with an anti-inflammatory diet. But if you're a couch potato and you drink green tea all day and you don't move except going to the green tea fridge, that will mm -hmm. not do it. Yeah, that um, it seems to me that when we put in playgrounds for mm -hmm. our children, we should also incorporate an area that have playgrounds for adults. 
yeah so we yeah, can yeah. run and skip and move and stretch and because when you when you do that on the kids uh, mm. things you get weird looks from people uh, if, I, if, I, if i come to pittsburgh mm -hmm. uh, usually i go on google earth and i see where is the class venue or where do i stay and i look at the children playgrounds mm -hmm. And uh, in, in the cities in which I have workshops, I can tell you which are the best playgrounds because I often go with the class there. <laughs> and like here, the here in Europe, we have one uh, tool on the playground, only every 10th or 20th playground. But in a big city, you have several of them in which you have a tensegrity like yes. steel mast in the middle. It's not real tensegrity, but mm -hmm. inspired by it. And then you have ropes tent-like ropes going down to the ground in different mm -hmm. directions and you have horizontal rope connections in between it and this is like a jungle you can hang upside down so i do it with most of my friends mm -hmm. uh, tom findley has been hanging in in these uh, uh, uh they are called space net space nets okay yeah, space mm -hmm. nets and Tom Myers has been hanging with me into them. So in most of the fascial fitness courses, we look for these playgrounds. And it's really nice. So uh, the best thing is you have some genes because it's a very nice beginning uh, exercise to put your knees over one of the horizontal ropes and mm -hmm. to fold your knees. But if then the rope is too hard, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Yes, it can cut into that. But if you fold your knees and you hang upside down, and then you swing. Of course, your contact lens is falling out the first time because you <laughs> haven't done that for 20 years. Mm -hmm. But you have so much time doing that, and you realize you are actually a monkey. And, and, your, and your chest loves to do that. Uh, your arms love to do it. So, so that would be one way how we need to get more active movement enthusiasm into the society and not just nutritional enthusiasm. Yes, because you can move, move it or lose it is a biological reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and before we have to lose our remaining time here this morning, one thing I also want to I, I want to spend a little time on is uh, one of your favorite topics, uh, which there's quite a bit about here and updated in fashion, sport and movement is fascia is a sensory organ and how mm. it's different in different aspects of the fascia because there's some new stuff that's come out about that. Yes, uh, so that is a chapter that I was very proud of and I think it's been quoted already uh, hundreds of times before it even was in print. That's great, that's what you want, man. <laughs> Get those citations. Get those citations. So the chapter fascia as a sensory organ, I got uh, Carlos Deco to co-write it together with me. And one of the tasks, but not the only one in this chapter, we got together with a German scientist who had done a quantification of the density of sensory nerve endings in the human skin. Mm -hmm. And Professor Martin Grunwald had shown that we have 100 million sensory nerve endings in the human skin. And uh, he, he knew how to do that calculation with different data banks, with three-dimensional density, etc. So we got together with him and with the two-dimensional calculations, measurements that we had from Kala's lab, but also from Siegfried Menz's lab, 
we worked together with him for several months to come up with a calculation. What is the quantity of sensory nerve endings, not in the human skin, but in the human fascial net? And we defined fascial net the way how we were uh, influenced by Neil Tease and others, where the loose connective tissues are included, the loose okay. connective uh, tissue under the skin, the subcutaneous connective tissue, and of course, also around the visceral organ. And then your fascial net is not your largest organ in your body. That is a common misconception because a bodybuilder definitely has more muscle tissue than fascial tissue. Uh, but it makes up in an average Caucasian adult body about 16% of the body volume. And then if you calculate how many million nerve endings do you have in these 16% of your mm -hmm. body volume, you come to the incredible number of 250 million nerve endings in the human body-wide fashion net. And we uh, double-checked it and we made the calculation uh, transparent in any way where other scientists can calculate it again. And if they come up to a different numbers, they can tell us and they can improve about that. But right now, this is the best calculation that we have. And that means fascia is not your largest organ, but it is by far your richest sensory organ of all the sensory organs that you have. So it's richer than the human skin. And it's also richer than the sense of seeing. Mm -hmm. And that is a surprise because most people thought, including me, what smelling is for dogs, seeing is for homo sapiens, unless you're blind that yeah. this is the dominant way how you uh, orient in the world. And, uh, and that was based on knowing how rich the retina is innovated. But now we realize, no, this is not your richest uh, sensory organ. Fascia is your richest sensory organ for how you perceive the, wo the world, including you and your position in the physical world. And then we have to look, and that's part of the chapter, why is it so rich and what kind of sensory qualities are you detecting with fascia? And one is proprioception, the other one is interoception, and uh, of course also myofascial pain that yes. you have there. Mm -hmm. And um, so in terms of the, the proprioception and interoception, uh, there's some interesting data out there indicating that certain conditions may be more a fault of the interoceptive system, things like yeah. bulimia, anorexia, maybe even fibromyalgia, that mm -hmm. there is a inaccurate translation of how one's inner state feels in terms of the brain and, and the insular cortex. Yeah. So for me, this that? is very exciting because as a Feldenkrais practitioner, I had been, as a raw movement teacher, I had been focusing more on proprioception. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, how I much do too. Slow doses do I have? Which shoulder blade is more forward in space? How is my position to gravity as a physical force? And less to how much energy streaming how much at home I feel in my right buttock compared with my left buttock <laughs> in terms of- And who I'm uh, with uh, when I feel more at home in my left buttock than my yeah. right buttock. 
<laughs> Does that and have an my, influence? And is my third toe warmer than my second toe on the right foot? Mm -hmm. And is it different on the left foot? These were not so interesting questions. But in terms of interoception, that is a very, very important question. And uh, uh, this is now a new focus, uh, also in body work and movement therapies, that we focus with some conditions more on the interoceptive awareness. And uh, then you have to be more a smoky, complementary storyteller practitioner than a noble, uh, humble scientist. Because mm -hmm. if you work with uh, interoception, we know that interoception is much more shaped by predictive coding that predictive it's not coding. So what, predictive uh, coding. Predictive coding. So that means the brain is not feeling what the temperature in your toe is. Mm -hmm. It is predicting what you expect is happening there. Okay. So it is one of the lunatics that you and I roll our eyes there. They go out with their paranoia expectation. And that's what they experience. And you tell them, hey, open your eyes. People are friendly. No, everybody is against me. You know, so they are full of projections, mm -hmm. but that is what interoception is always doing. You are not feeling in the insula, that is the part of the brain where mostly interoception is regulated. You are not feeling what is really happening in your knee. You are projecting what you expect to be happening based on what you see, what you smell, and what the therapist told you three seconds before. And then you say, now it's dreaming. But the blood flow is influencing only to 3%, whether you feel wow. a streaming or not. So the storytelling of the practitioner, now it will be great. In my healing hands, this follow me, uh, mm -hmm. uh, is 90% of the bill. And, and whether your hands really increase microcirculation uh, micro, uh, is 3% of the benefits that you have. I hate it as a scientist because as a felon <laughs> price practitioner, we are trained no, no, I, not I to be biased. Yeah. As, as a scientist, I don't like it either as a, um, as a, as a practitioner. I was almost going to say the word performer, but I don't quite want it to sound <laughs> no, like that. Yeah. But, but we do know that a certain a certain frequency in the voice can vary yeah. the vagal tone of the other person. It's, you, know, you, you know, whenever there's a little upset baby, I just walk up to the baby and go, hi, what's going yeah. on? Are you having a rough yeah. day? And just <laughs> looking them in the eye and talking yeah. to a baby yeah. like they're an adult and they just like quiet up right away. And it can have a similar effect on adults as well. If you could just kind of drop into that, yeah. that, that just, yeah. just 10% drop in, drop in that baseline. Yeah. But, but this leads to something, this leads to a phenomenon that I saw, that I was observing, I've always wanted to talk with you about, uh, among a certain, it's a small percentage of the population that I see, but when I see it, it's incredibly strong. And it, maybe it's this, um, uh, I'm sorry, predictive, what did you call it, predictive? Predictive coding. Predictive coding, I'm gonna write that down, predictive yeah. coding. Uh, I've seen people- uh, I think the better term is self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so we do create our own reality. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now we know. And, through and particularly heteroception, not yes. so much in proprioception. So, so what I see sometimes is, is people who their ability to regulate what they're feeling in an accurate way 
um, there, there almost is no self-regulation. So they're, they're, you can't tell them their perception is wrong. Yeah. Because for them, it's very real in the moment. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a combination of my storytelling abilities, uh, along with my physiological, I'm going to move this here and I'm going to release that fascia there. Um, and then they feel that migration that, okay, the tension has left this area. Oh, but now it's over here. And mm-hmm. instead of being curious about it, they catastrophize about yeah. it. And oh, I've yeah. Seen catastrophizing it. Is, uh, is very much predictive coding. Mm-hmm. Uh, going in a negative direction. So, yeah. so what what can you do to to I mean um, uh, EMDR? I mean, what sorts of things yeah. can begin to change that predictive coding? Well, first of all, um, in proprioception, I don't think it's so important. And as a Feldenkrais practitioner, if you do the professional four year training, they you pay attention that your voice is neutral. So if you, if you do an exercise on the left leg and then you do it with mental imagery on the right leg, you ask with your neutral voice, how is your left leg? Mm-hmm. And you make a pause. And then you say with the same kind of voice, how is your right leg? So that they are not giving the answer that, they, that Robert wants to hear. Yes, but yes. That they have to go in their proprioceptive mm-hmm. sensation to find the answer. Yes, and but, I'm, I'm grateful that I had that in my training too, because when yeah. somebody gets up off the table and we've treated one leg and not the other leg, I'm just going to say, what do you feel? Yeah. And I get but, really annoyed when people ask leading questions. Yeah, and, and you say, what do you feel in your left leg? And mm-hmm. now your right leg. <laughs> you yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Don't you feel better? <laughs> oh, I hate that. I hate when yeah. people do but that. But no. if you and I want to become interoceptive shamans, we have to okay. use that language. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so under the right language. conditions, we can go to that place, is what you're saying. Okay. So you should not ask in a neutral voice, mm-hmm. is your right leg the same as you? You would say, don't you feel a little bit more life in your right leg? And you say it with a, with a whispering voice. Yes. So, so you mm-hmm. do the same that catastrophizing is doing, mm-hmm. where you create a negative expectation. You create a beneficial healing sensation that after a certain therapeutic exercise, whether it's foam rolling or breathing, that there is a pleasurable sensation in the leg. It could be streaming, it could be warmth, it could be relaxation, and you don't leave it to their insula to feel or not to feel whether there is a 1% increase in blood flow. That is not important. It is the expectation that you create with your voice. Mm. So I had, a, I had an experience with a patient yesterday who mm-hmm. worked a lot with a Feldenkrais practitioner in another part of the world, uh, and they're still in contact with each other. And uh, this Feldenkrais practitioner was, was with a lot the, the long and short of it is, in, in the first treatment that I shared with this person, um, I reflected to her that she had a very military spine, very, very flattened mm-hmm. thoracic mm-hmm. curve, very straight neck mm-hmm. as well. And when she shared that with the Feldenkrais practitioner, the Feldenkrais practitioner said, you mean he just told you that? 
Mm-hmm. He didn't let you experience that and find it out so there for we yourself. Go, there we go. We had a four-year <laughs> training on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if if you were in the third year of the Feldenkrais training and you and the teacher is being told that David told his patient that he has a military spine, you would have to go back into round one. <laughs> <laughs> But see, some people want to be in the accelerated course. They're like, thank you. That that helps me figure yeah. this out now. But, but I think and this is not related. a person who's going to catastrophize. Yeah. So, so for, for proprioception, mm-hmm. the self-fulfilling prophecy or the making up an expectation is not so important. Uh, but for interoception, it seems to be 90% of, of the experience is shaped or more. It's based mm-hmm. on the architecture of the insula. Uh, it has uh, different layers of cells, and most of the layers have no connection uh, to the peripheral body, but lots of connection to advisors from other parts of the brain that remember when you hear whispering, it's positive, and when uh-huh. you have that smell. And last time, three years ago, this knee was painful. Do you remember? <laughs> So, so when you engage those more shamanistic storytelling yeah. capabilities, that actually, to me, sounds like in some ways you can engage more of the neuroplastic response in these cases. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not good at it mm-hmm. uh, because it contradicts my scientific values. <laughs> but uh, it means if a client mm-hmm. is in a post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. or in an eating disorder, but most likely also fibromyalgia, I would not give them 20 Feldenkrais sessions or Iyengar yoga lessons with a strong proprioceptive focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would ask them whether they know any practitioner who works more holistically. And then you see on their eyes whether they like this direction or not. Mm-hmm. But then they may mention a name and you can see that they feel positively impressed. Some crystal healer, some uh, Luna yoga, uh, mm-hmm. some Tibetan bowls, etc. And I would support them to go into this non-scientific direction because I know there the practitioner will be doing what I'm not good at. They will be doing an anti-catastrophizing bias with the client. Where, where, where they create a healing expectation, a story together. You know, now your life for 36 years, you have not found a solution, but now you found me. I'm your savior and together we are creating the turning point in your life, you know. And, and this is a, mm-hmm. a story that you should not have as a responsible, scientifically educated practitioner but it would be beneficial (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i I don't necessarily catastrophizing client (laughs) Mm -hmm. no i'm I'm getting that now i'm really 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 getting that now yeah and and because in this point it's beyond reason yeah and it's very difficult to use reason uh with somebody who the capacity for that reasoning is diminished because of this hyperactive catastrophizing tendency. Yeah. But uh, coming back to the book, because we could talk for hours. Uh, I think we will talk for hours. You're coming back. back. Let's get back to the book here. The fascia in sports and movement here. But uh, the book used to have locomotor focus. 
-hmm. like in the first edition, which was only less than 300 pages, but yes, this, this is, is now huge, almost man. 600 pages. Mm -hmm. And I need to say, it took me three years of my life, not only of my life, but also many other authors' People's, lives. Was, was it worth it, is the question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it was, looking at the result. I no, think it, was it, it was, it was, definitely. But uh, also, uh, and, when, and when we did the book, we, we knew that there is much more information to include, and that also many of the chapters written in the first edition need to be rewritten. But we didn't expect to become such a rich book that it now has, has turned out to be with so many different chapters and contributions. But that is one of the new directions also that the body work and the movement therapies included include yoga from different angles. Yes. Tai Chi, martial arts. Yes, there's martial arts. There yeah. is uh, Pilates dance. Yeah. There yeah. is fascia in dance. There is training for soccer. There is movement therapy for breast cancer survivors. It's a yeah. very rich, broad swath when we say sport yeah. and movement, where we, you really do mean that. We're not just talking about like the big professional sports here, but all aspects yeah. of sport and movement. And one of the masters in terms of predictive coding or creating story suggestions uh, is Eric Franklin with the idiokinesis. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he didn't invent idiokinesis, uh, but he de definitely developed it to a new level. So you give the client part mostly visual images, but not uh, exclusively visual. It could be also tasting and hearing included. And you change their direction to feel more aliveness in their right leg to feel more expansion, more heaviness, more bubbling, etc. So that is also one of the chapters, which I'm very great that we included into these uh, mindfulness oriented movement therapies that are now included. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great, it's a great contribution to the, the literature and it's a great contribution to any conscientious practitioner out there who wants to get a better handle on different angles of what they already do to uh, better get better results for the people that they serve. Uh, and everything that I'm leaving out is mm -hmm. Jan Wilke. I was so lucky to get him as a co-editor <laughs> of this book. You were, you were. Jan, yeah. Jan is awesome. He was not able to make it today uh, because of other scheduling obligations, but we're hoping to have him back on the podcast one-on-one -on -one to talk about his perspective yeah. on yeah. this book. So, so it changed the whole book. Uh, mm -hmm. It wa was more a female dancing Lula Lula book in the, in the first edition. <laughs> and it became more sports and performance oriented in the mm -hmm. second book, not only by the cover, but mm -hmm. also by, by more sports science oriented uh, chapters that he yeah. either wrote himself. I think he wrote six or seven chapters himself. And, but also by the experts that he had access to, which I didn't have to contribute chapters mm. in this book. So yeah. this is well, very nice to have. Jan, Jan is one of my favorite new, I'm putting new in air quotes, yeah. new researchers yeah. here because he's like half our age, but he's the next generation coming he up. He's going to move there. the ball he's all further forward. Yeah, he is really up there and done some majorly impressive work uh, and is still very early in his research career. So there's going to be links in the show notes to where you can get the book, including... Um, a discount code for listeners of the podcast who order direct from the publisher 
Handspring Publishing that ships worldwide. And uh, you can find that discount code in the show notes. Robert, anything else you want to mention before we say goodbye for today? Uh, the chapter that Jan and I had the most fun is a chapter on Einstein versus Yoda. Yeah, chapter 23. Power. That's just what we were yeah. talking about. And yeah, we I had so that. much fun because we, we brought uh, together uh, our different backgrounds. Me as an enlightenment seeking but failing um, spiritual person before I became a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> and him. You know that. I, I know that problem. <laughs> and, and him is starting much, much more on the hardcore scientific side. And mm -hmm. in this chapter, we looked at what is called body memory. And we looked at it in a very nice analysis how we can look at body memory with that perspective of being Einstein, but also being open for different perspectives, which we projected on Yoda from Star Wars in it. Yes. So that is our favorite chapter. I think it's only like eight pages. Or yeah, something. No, it's, it's a delight. And you may not yeah. know this, but when they were designing Yoda, George Lucas used Albert Einstein as one of the oh, templates because for they look Yoda. Similar, so that just shows you how on point you are. Yeah. That shows you how on point you are. Yeah. So in, in the next podcast, maybe in 20 years, mm -hmm. I will try to look like either Einstein or Yoda or both of them. I, I think on... I, I could see you going in that direction. <laughs> but so based on this chapter. Yeah, yeah. Robert, thank you so much for being here. Thank Hope you, to have you again soon. All right. That's it for Body Talk this week. Join us next week for another episode. On Body Talk. Thank you for listening to another episode of Body Talk. Any questions, questions for me, questions for our guest, send me an email. BodyTalkDavid at gmail.com or you can use the Anchor app and send me a voice memo. How cool is that? I'm David Lasondak. Join me next week when we continue to explore your inner universe on Body Talk.